0: In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Who is Jesus? That is one of the main questions that Mark sets out to ask and try and answer as we go through his gospel accounts. And we've already been introduced to Jesus. Um, Last week, uh, it began with this great headline saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that that refers to the entire story of Jesus' life and his teaching and his works right through to his death and his resurrection um, at the end of the gospel. And so uh, today, we're we're sort of further fleshing out this question then. Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is he? Um, Don't forget, uh, John the Baptist has been uh, gathering the people and preparing them and saying, God is coming, prepare the way, prepare your hearts, be baptised. And so into that situation then, uh, Jesus comes. And so uh, we we see really from these verses four uh, descriptions of who Jesus is. And really this is just an introduction. And and as I say, uh, we'll we'll see these fleshed out as we go through the gospel uh, of Mark. So who is Jesus? First of all, he is God's son. He is God's son. Uh, Verse 10, Jesus has been baptised by John the Baptist. And it says as he's coming up out of the water... Um, he has this this vision, this sort of revelation, I suppose, and he, he sees the spirit coming upon him like a dove and, and a voice comes from heaven, uh, God the Father, and he says to Jesus, the voice says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's just spend a few moments focusing on this, on this word from heaven. You are my beloved son. It, it seems likely that this was spoken to Jesus only. It doesn't Sound like anyone else um, uh, was there who who, who could hear it? This is a personal revelation to Jesus himself. And it it happened um, at the beginning of his ministry, almost like the formal uh, beginning, the inauguration of his earthly ministry. And he heard this word from the Father, this word of affirmation to to affirm to him, remind him, and press it deeper into him You are my son. And with you I am well pleased. And this, this, this word was hidden from everyone else. Why, why would that be? Why would it be that only Jesus uh, would be the one to hear the voice and no one else? Um, the, the people of God, you see the, the Jews, uh, firmly believed and held to this, this great truth that God is one. God is one and he's the only one. And that was something that God revealed about himself from the very early days, you know, from the burning bush when when Moses uh, wasn't sure what was going on and God spoke and he said, I am. Uh, From that moment onwards, God has revealed himself as as the only one. Uh, God is one. And that was very different from all the other surrounding nations that Israel came up against. They all had, all those other cultures had their own uh, gods. They, they embraced a multiplicity of gods. But Israel, the people of God, were different. God was one. He was a universal God over everyone and everything. And so if Jesus, fast forward now, if Jesus came into that moment and, and, and began with the headline, I am the son of God reaching a predominantly Jewish audience, um, his ministry would be over before it began. Um, they, they, they would not be able to accept someone who came along saying, I'm the son of God from the get-go. And instead, as we will see, um, as, as the gospel of Mark rolls on, Jesus instead shows by his actions that he is the son of God and in his teaching. In fact, it's other people that recognize that he is God himself. He is the son of God before Jesus even um, speaks that. Uh, but certainly as we see, and we'll see this over the next few weeks, he behaved as if he was God. I mean, there are things that Jesus did um, that would only happen, only, you would only take to yourself if you were divine. For example, he forgave people's sins. Uh, we'll see that in chapter 2. Uh, in fact, the religious leaders who were around him and heard him forgiving someone's sins, they said, who can forgive sins but God himself? Now, they disagreed with Jesus' own presentation of himself, but Jesus clearly was forgiving sins. He understood himself to be doing that. Only God can forgive sins. We, We see also Jesus had a mastery over creation. He was able to speak to the wind and the waves and say, be still, and immediately... From a huge storm, they settled and became calm. Who can do that but God? Jesus felt uh, at liberty to set aside parts of the Old Testament law, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Only God can can give and set aside and and uh, you know instruct uh, His own word. In fact, Jesus quite often uh, in His own teaching said, "You've heard it say said to you in the past, but I say to you." Do not do this or that or the other thing. He spoke authoritatively God's word as if he was God. Not like a prophet who would start by saying, God says to you, Jesus said, I say to you. Even the, the religious leaders towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, they made the connection. They saw what he was up to. They, they realized that he uh, was presenting himself and acting as if he was God himself. They saw the connection. They hated the connection. They scorned the connection. They, they killed him for the connection. But they saw it nonetheless. His own enemies saw that he was proclaiming to be the son of God. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the only person who confessed out loud publicly that Jesus was the Son of God was the centurion, stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. And he saw the manner of his death and he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Mark 15 verse 39 not recorded in Mark's gospel, but at the end of Matthew's gospel account, which is like an extended version of Mark, uh, the disciples, when they see Jesus resurrected and present with them in body, it said that they fell down and worshipped him. Now, for a a group of, of Jews who say that God is only one, there's only one God, for them to worship a human being, as they were doing at that moment, could have been either an unthinkable blasphemy, Or it was because they realized that he was truly divine, that he was God, and they worshipped him. Why does does Mark not make this more explicit? Why does Jesus not make it more explicit that he was God from the get-go? Wouldn't that just make it a lot clearer for all of us reading from today? Well, it's kind of like, I suppose, reading a detective novel or a spy thriller or something like that, as you're reading through or even watching a movie, there's all sorts of little hints and clues and little uh, bits and pieces that at the first time as you go through, you don't pick up on it. You don't realize what they're all about and, and how they all fit together. It's only when you get to the end and you realize who the, who the killer was or who the bad guy was and they, it's all exposed. And then you go back and you realize, ah, oh, that's what was going on. In the same way, that's what we're seeing here. These these clues, these suggestions, these seeds that are sown. And as the revelation of Gospel of Mark progresses, we see in more clarity, more vision that Jesus is the Son of God. At least that's what he claimed to be. So who is Jesus? Well, the Son of God, firstly. But who is Jesus? Number two, he's actually one of us. He's one of us. He's a human being. And we see this across all four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We just cannot escape the way that the writers present Jesus is that he is just like one of us. Um, we don't have it here in Mark's Gospel, but in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, they both uh, chart the, the uh, infancy of Jesus, the birth and as far as we're, we, can, we can discern, Jesus was born normally, just like any child is born today. His mother gave birth to him. And, and uh, the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of information about Jesus' upbringing, but it says uh, every, a couple of little phrases here and there demonstrate that Jesus grew normally. He developed normally. He went from being a baby to being a toddler to being a four-year-old. He, he had to learn to walk and, and, and probably read and write and, and, and put his own clothes on, just like our own children do, just like you did at one point in your life. Uh, you had to learn how to, um, how to interact with other people, how to speak. Jesus did that too. In, in that way, he was just like us. And, and as we go through, and again, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus eating just like us. Um, you'll see him drinking, just like us. He attended dinner parties. He even drank wine. We see Jesus became hungry. Uh, Jesus got tired. He he became angry at times. Um, he was grieved. He he was sad. Uh, we see that Jesus enjoyed a laugh. In fact, he nicknamed two of his disciples, James and John. We'll come to them later. He nicknamed them the sons of thunder because of their bad temper. Jesus prayed just like we do. He spent time alone with God just like we do. He had compassion on the poor and lowly. It seems that kids loved hanging out with Jesus. But in these verses here that we've read together this morning, Jesus takes it a step further. Um, He's not just one of us in general, um, but he identifies with us specifically. Where do we get that from? Well, in verse 9, it says that uh, Jesus came from uh, Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Don't forget, John the Baptist was baptizing people, preparing them for the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. And, and crowds and crowds were going out to John the Baptist. Well, here we see Jesus himself going out to John the Baptist to be baptized. The crowds, you see, were preparing for the coming of Kingdom of God, and they went through baptism to to demonstrate that and mark that. But Jesus, here in his baptism, was marking the beginning of the kingdom of God, the start of his ministry, and yet he went and received the same baptism. What was he doing? Why did he go forward for baptism? Um, There's multiple ways that we can answer that. But what he was ultimately saying was, I am standing alongside these people here. I'm coming alongside them. I'm saying, I've come to join myself to these people who are eagerly expecting the kingdom of God. Yes, as we've been thinking, he was the son of God, but he's the son of God who who came down to us. And, And this group of people, this vast number of people waiting for God to come and save them, who needed God to come and save them. Jesus was saying to them, I am here. I am with you. I am giving myself to you. I am stepping in, identifying myself with you. He's one of us. And let, let this be an encouragement for you this morning, please. Let this be an encouragement for us as a community. Um, No matter what issues that that you're facing right now in your life, your personal life, your, your mental health maybe, the trials that you might be going through or any challenges that you're feeling, let's face it, we're all going through some challenge or other at the moment. The encouragement here is that Jesus has come for you. He's come to stand alongside whatever it is that you are struggling with and going through. And he has come to offer us a way out. He's come to, to lift you up, to bring you to himself. That's what Jesus has come to do. Let me point out a funny little um, phrase, actually, furthermore. In verse 13, we're going to examine it more clearly in a minute, but there's a little phrase here. When Jesus was out being tempted uh, for 40 days in the wilderness... It says that he was with the wild animals. He was with the wild animals. What's that about? One thing that we can be sure of is that Mark didn't just put it there uh, for a bit of background to sort of, you know, create some context or something like that, you know, just to get the scenery straight. Every single word in the Gospel of Mark uh, was chosen by Mark specifically to serve a certain end, to to, to give a message. And and commentators, some commentators think that this comment about wild animals was relevant to Mark's original hearers. As as I mentioned last week, Mark was the earliest of the four Gospels to be written between 50 and 60 AD. Um, and, And he wrote to believers, to Christians at the time. And and at that time, Christians were starting to be persecuted mercilessly by the Roman emperor called Nero. Nero was the Roman emperor between 54 and 68. So right around the time when Mark was writing his gospel account. And do you know what happened to some Christians that were heavily persecuted, particularly in the city of Rome? They were taken and thrown to wild animals. And crowds would gather, you know, in the Colosseum, what have you, to watch them get torn apart by wild animals, to be destroyed because of their faith in Jesus. And commentators think that Mark is pointing out to his original readers that Jesus, he has faced up to the wild animals. He's been there. Even even in the darkest suffering that you can go through, Mark is teaching us that Jesus is with you. He's been there. He has faced what you face. He knows what you're going through. He knows how you feel. And more than that, he is able to do something about it. He's God's son. He's he's one of us. What else does this teach us about who Jesus is. Well, it teaches us that he is spirit-filled. He's spirit-filled. Um, as we've been seeing, he's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's identified with the people that he has come to save and, and bring uh, into the kingdom of God. And then uh, it says there in verse 10, uh, as he was coming up out of the water, most likely he was you know in the river, he was immersed uh, in the water. And as he was uh, Coming up from the water, it says he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. This, this word torn, uh, the original Greek word um, is schizo or schizo, which means torn. It's where we get our word schism from or even schizophrenic. It's a tearing Uh, apart uh, ripping apart that's what that word means and and, and Jesus after he's been baptized saw the heavens being torn apart Um, effectively he saw the heavens opening upon the earth there was this moment in his experience there was this connection between heaven up there and earth down here the two were one this sort of tearing apart and, and this, by the way, this, this, this idea of the heavens tearing open uh, would have been a reasonably familiar uh, concept that, that, that often kicks off or begins a revelation from God or a vision or a prophecy. The heavens tore open and then something significant happened where God spoke. And this is exactly what happens. We see the heavens torn open. Uh, he saw the heavens tore, torn open. And the spirits, the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. Of course, last week we were thinking together about how the Messiah, the chosen one of God, would come, according to uh, John the Baptist, and baptize the people with the Holy Spirit. And we were thinking last week that means that the, the inauguration, the coming of the kingdom of God, the realm of God's presence like never before, God's intimacy with his people like never before, uh, blessing, abundance, peace, and the Messiah was going to come and bring that through the outpouring, the saturating of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see, at the start of Jesus' own ministry as the Christ, as the chosen one of God, he receives the Holy Spirit himself. He receives the Holy Spirit without measure, as the Gospel of John puts it. He receives the Holy Spirit without measure at that moment. He becomes the spirit-filled man. Now, it's not that he didn't have the Holy Spirit before that. But in terms of his empowering, his anointing, his equipping for the ministry that was to take place, he received this outpouring of the Holy Spirit like never before. And his job was to bring the kingdom. Yes, he was God's son. Yes, he's one of us. But here he is, the man filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. And why do I highlight this? Why is it important for us to understand this about who Jesus is? Well, it's important because much, if not all, of what Jesus does and what we're going to see over the next few weeks, much of what he does is as a spirit-filled man, spirit-filled human being. He is empowered with, with the spirit to heal people, to, to be you know, mastery over demons, to feed the 5,000 as the spirit-filled man. And, and, And that's relevant for us today as the church, surely. Because that same Holy Spirit who fell upon Jesus at his baptism several years later was poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Jesus the Messiah, of course, intended to share and pour out the Holy Spirit on his people. Where do we get that from? Well, uh, you can skip forward if you want to Mark 3. and uh, We'll see this in a few weeks' time. When Jesus calls his 12 disciples together, his, his dream team, if you like, at the start, um, he said to them, I'm going to send you out, you 12, to preach the gospel and have authority to cast out demons. Gave them authority. Luke records in chapter 10 of his own gospel, not just the 12, but another 72 disciples of Jesus were sent out by Jesus to go and preach the gospel. And he says, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. It seems that it's Jesus' intention, even in these early days of his ministry, to further share and equip his disciples, to go out and continue his ministry. And as we've been thinking, on that day of Pentecost, when the early believers were gathered together in one room, the Holy Spirit came upon them, the day when effectively the church was created. Don't forget, we saw last week, the prophets said, I will pour out my spirit, said God, on all people. just want to be clear before you mistake um, what I'm saying. Uh, Jesus, of course, Jesus is unique. He is the Son of God by nature. That's who he is. Um, his saving work on the cross and his resurrection is unique. It is unrepeatable. But what I'm trying to highlight here, and I think it's here in the text, is that same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus is the spirit with which he poured out on the church several years later following his death, resurrection, and ascension. And this has, of course, implications for us about how we see our ministry as a church, about what we should pray for as a church. It has implications when we say, may your kingdom come and your will be done, when we understand that Jesus was the spirit-filled man. It has implications for what we hope for for what we should expect among us as his people. So he's the son. He's one of us. He's the spirit-filled man. And fourthly, he's victorious. Uh, in verse 13, 12, 13, uh, Jesus, there he is, the spirit-filled man, filled with the spirit without measure. And what's the first thing that happens to him? He goes and heals a 1,000 people. He feeds the 5,000 No, he's driven by the Spirit. That same Spirit drove him into the wilderness where no one is. And out he went. And it says that he was out in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Who is Satan? Satan is the great enemy of God and his people. Uh, The Bible tells us he's a fallen angel who led a rebellion against God's rule in heaven. He was thrown out. He's been defeated at the cross of Christ. But yet he is still active, trying to distract, trying to crush, trying to minimize and destroy the church as best he can. And in some areas, very sadly, he's having success. But why is it important here? What's going on? Why did Jesus get taken straight away out into the wilderness by the Spirit? What's going on? Some people here, some commentators see some symbolism hanging around this idea of 40 days. It's a very specific number of days. Again, Mark doesn't just put in words vaguely. He means uh, a lot by each word he picks. Very specific. And, and, And some commentators think that this 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness corresponds to the 40 years that the Old Testament people of Israel spent in the wilderness. Um, but the background to this, if, if you're not familiar, is that God's people were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. And eventually, um, God, uh, at his perfect timing, uh, heard their misery, heard, saw their oppression, and he uh, brought them out. He released them from slavery. And, and uh, they were to be taken on their way to the promised land to go and take up residence in their own home, the place where he had picked by hand for them to live in. But but when they came up out of Egypt and they they, they just sort of um, emerged out of that place, God uh, tested his people. And he wanted to know, do my people love me for who I am? Or do they just like me when I do nice stuff for them, when I free them from their enemies, so to speak, when I bring them out of Egypt? Are their hearts really for me? Or do they just sort of come and go, depending on how well their lives are going, etc.? And so he tested them, and they failed the test. Not just one test, or two or three, multiple times. God gave them opportunities to demonstrate their devotion, their love for him, because of what he had done for them, and they failed the test. They rebelled, they disobeyed God, they railed against uh, God's leader, the man called Moses, And his team, they failed the test. And as such, God sort of pulled back. He withdrew. He he allowed them to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the promised land. That unfaithful generation died in the wilderness. Their children inherited the covenant blessing in going into the promised land. That's the background. So here we have Jesus. And we've already seen how he's identifying with God's people, and here he is again representing God's people entering the wilderness. And here we have Jesus, like Old Testament Israel, he's being tested. Ferociously tested, I might add. And unlike Israel, who failed the test, Jesus succeeded. He proved himself faithful when they were faithless. He showed commitment to the calling, when they showed commitment to themselves. Jesus pushed on with his mission, despite being severely tempted for such a concentrated period. He did not give in. Jesus was victorious. And that's so helpful for us to know today, especially for those of us who are facing, we all face temptation, right? It's nothing new there. But we face it in different ways at different times. And sometimes temptation to do the wrong thing, to give in, or not do the right thing, um, that comes at us uh, out of the blue, from a surprise. We just, we're not ready for it. It catches us side on. And we feel intense pressure, even though we know what we're doing is wrong. We, we feel intense pressure to go on and give in to whatever urge or, or desire or, or whatever leading you know, we want to go for. It feels so strong, this temptation. It has such a pull on us. We think, it is so unfair. Why, why am I the only one to suffer? It's just easier for me to give in and go with it. And yet here we see Jesus. Think about Jesus here for a moment. We see him. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. He fought back. He overcame. We give in, right, to temptation. I give in to temptation. It's called sin. Temptation isn't so strong when you give into it. It goes away when you give into it. Jesus faced unbelievable temptation. In fact, his is way worse than anything you or I could ever experience. His, His temptation mounted up and up and up and up. The evil one wanted him to fail before he even got going. And yet Jesus never gave in. He had a greater temptation than any of us, and yet he passed the test. So what was he doing, being tempted? What was the purpose or the point? Not just to prove that he could do it. Hey, I've passed the test and y'all have failed. That wasn't it. As we've already seen, he's one of us and he identifies with us through his baptism, solidarity with people. What was going on at this moment when Jesus was being severely tempted for 40 days out in the wilderness? He was doing it for you. He was doing it for you. He was doing it so that one day you could be counted righteous in God's sight. That's what he was doing. We're going to bring in a bit of biblical theology here, a bit of big picture stuff to help us interpret what was going on. You see, when someone becomes a Christian, what they're doing is they are trusting Jesus to make them right with God. That's what being a Christian entails, trusting Jesus to make them right with God. And this happens. This, you being right with God happens because of Jesus' righteousness given to you. And so when we see Jesus here being tempted in the wilderness, not just then, for the whole of his life, right up until the cross, tempted, beating temptation, overcoming Satan, he was doing it for you. So that when you come to trust in Jesus, God will treat you as if his perfect record is yours. Trusting Jesus to make you right with God. That's what he was doing in the wilderness. He was doing it for you. Is that helpful? Uh, We see he's the son. We see he's one of us. We see he's the spirit-filled man. We see he is victorious. Awesome. Awesome. We're going to focus over our next few minutes. That's who he is. What does he say? What does he say? And uh, we just get a bit of a glimpse about his big message here. Who he is and what does he say? He says to us two things. And we see this in the text again. He says, first of all, the kingdom is here. And secondly, he says, follow me. The kingdom is here. Let's just build on what we were learning together last week. The headline of Jesus' ministry, verses 14 and 15, after he was arrested, John was arrested, came to Galilee. Jesus was proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the rest of Jesus' ministry is an exposition of That main point, everything that he does um, and is presented in the gospel of Mark is preaching this message, demonstrating this message, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And he does that. By the way, when it says the kingdom of God is at hand or in other translations, the kingdom of God is near, it doesn't mean near in terms of time, like the clock's ticking and it's almost here, can you wait for it? The Greek demonstrates that it's near in a spatial sense. You know, um, I'm I'm near to Tyler, and I'm not so near to Andrew. The kingdom of God is near; it's it's close. In fact, it would have been fascinating to see Jesus' body language when he preached this and, and demonstrated this. The kingdom of God is near. Did he ever point to himself? Did did he ever say it's it's, it's near? It's right here because the kingdom of God was coming in Jesus. That's why it's near. This new world order, this eternal kingdom and reign of God, his presence, his power, his peace, it is near. And this is such good news. Last week we heard some good news. Um, they, They announced this rolling out of this COVID 19 vaccine. And many people are saying, commentators on TV are saying, it's a game changer. I wonder how you felt when you heard the news of a COVID-19 vaccine. You feel good about that? You feel glad? Relieved, maybe? Oh. Finally. Maybe you're like me, cautiously optimistic, really hoping this works out, but can't quite come to believe just yet, because we've had a few disappointments, haven't we? There was a clip that came up on, on my social feed. Um, from Radio 4, the Today program, the presenter is called Sarah Montague. And she was interviewing Professor Sir John Bell, who's the Regis Professor of Medicine at the University of Oxford. And and he was on being interviewed that morning. And he said, I can predict, quote, with some confidence that things could return to normal by spring following the introduction of this vaccine. And... uh, We just saw the reaction of Sarah Montague. It's all sort of filmed, as they do these days. Um, And you could just see the sense of relief, hands up in the air, and she said, that's fabulous news. And it felt like she was doing a a fist pump on behalf of the entire nation, expressing something of this, that is fabulous news. That is so good. If this works out the way you're saying That is fabulous news. And of course, the implications of this working out are hugely significant for our entire society, for our city, for our lives, for our families. All sectors will benefit if this works out. Fabulous news. But just imagine with me for a second. Allow your mind to wander creatively with me how good it would sound if in addition to that... That we would hear of the end of not just COVID 19, but of all viruses permanently. Everything from HIV to the flu to the common cold. Imagine if you heard that a vaccine was coming that would one day eradicate all of that. And imagine even more creatively, something that would take away not just viruses but all infections, all pathogens, all illnesses even. Imagine a day if someone would come along and say, there is a moment coming when all sickness will be gone. Not just sickness, disability, dysfunction, all gone. Fabulous news, right? Let's press on even further. Let's get even more creative. Imagine then... On on this moment, this day, whatever it happens to be of great renewal and healing, not only physical diseases are healed, but social diseases eradicated as well. Poverty, isolation, loneliness, relational breakdowns, all of it restored, all of it healed. No more misery, no more tears. The elation that we feel about a COVID-19 vaccine, multiply that up 10,000 times, if you may, in your mind. Just imagine a healing so comprehensive, so full, that all of the created order is caught up within it. Our world, our creation is healed, as set as it should be. Fabulous news. Is this just some sort of utopian dream that religious people come up with to keep the masses in check? Is that what this is? Is this just too good to be true? Well, it is the vision that the Bible has for the world. It is the picture of how things will be because God is at work. And what we're reading here at the beginning of Mark's gospel is the beginning of that process. Jesus here, as we see, inaugurating, welcoming, beginning the kingdom of God, bringing it near. The time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how you get it. That's how you access this, is Jesus saying. This is completely astounding. He is saying that the kingdom is coming and you access it by repent and believe. And it's so important uh, for us to be clear, especially if you're from a church background, and you've heard these terms used significantly over the years. So important because our very access and entry into the kingdom of God depends on us understanding and actually doing repenting and believing. Repent, the biblical form of that word, means turning from, turning from. Turning from whatever ideas, whatever plans, whatever lifestyle you thought would bring you that peace, that harmony, that satisfaction that only Jesus can bring. Repent from that. Jesus says through this teaching, I want you to realize how impossible it is for you to come into the kingdom of God, aside from me, turn away from whatever it was you were doing because it ain't working and it won't work ultimately. Only through me, repent, turn from, and believe. The other side of the coin, or rather the other side of the key, I suppose, if you imagine a key with, uh, you know, not just flat on one side, but it has uh, grooves up both sides. Um, repent and believe are two sides of the key to unlock you into the kingdom. Repent is turning from, believing is turning to, turning to Jesus. And we're going to see this much throughout this whole series. Jesus places himself squarely at the center of our faith, of faith in general. He says, believe in me. I will open the kingdom to you. I will bring it to you. I will bring you to it. Repent and believe. First word, the kingdom is coming. Second word, finally, follow me. Verses 16 through 20. This big kingdom invites. He calls his first disciples together. He assembles his team. Do you notice, actually, um, in starting at verse 9, our verses today, how quickly Mark moves through these really significant, massive events, right? In terms of salvation history. Jesus baptised. Holy Spirit coming down. You know, the temptation, he's just given a few lines to that. But when it gets to the calling of his disciples, his team, it's like Mark slows the pace down and he says, look at what I'm saying to you. Think about what Jesus is doing. It's almost as if Mark is saying, focusing on the community that Jesus is forming. How crucial, how important that is. He's forming this new community is going to represent the kingdom, we're going to enter the kingdom, going to represent the kingdom, going to carry on that kingdom work. Let's examine that very briefly for a moment. Jesus came and found them. Right? These, these four men were busy at work. They a fishermen, it tells us. This is highly unusual, by the way, highly unusual. Um, students always sought out the rabbi. That the student took the initiative, came to the rabbi, appealed to the rabbi, tried to get into the school of that rabbi to learn from that rabbi. Here, Jesus turns the tables. He seeks out his disciples. He picks them by hand. He calls them by name. Follow me, he says to Simon. Follow me, he says to Andrew, and likewise to James and John, and I will make you become fishers of men. You're not there yet. We're starting from scratch, guys. But I'm going to take you, I'm going to train you, I'm going to teach you how to bring people into the kingdom. Go fish. You're going to see and experience this firsthand. And then you get to open it to other people. But, and here's the but, there's a cost to following Jesus. Always is. A high bar indeed. Indeed. Uh, Look down at verse 18. Jesus said to Simon and his brother Andrew, follow me. And it says immediately they left their nets. See, following Jesus might mean, as it did in their situation, economic cost. We don't know if they ever went back to the business or if they immediately abandoned the whole thing. We suspect they carried on. Um, but, but even so, over the, the next three years of ministry, their ability to fish and make a living for themselves and their family is going to be greatly diminished because they're following Jesus. Often this is the case. I don't always like referring to myself in, in sermons, um, but I, I know this firsthand. Following Jesus has definitely come at a cost Following Jesus may mean you have to take a pay cut somewhere to be a faithful follower of Jesus. It it may mean taking a less desirable job to listen to his calling. It may mean turning your back on amassing wealth or prestige in in the world's eyes in order to faithfully follow Jesus. There's a cost. But look at the second pair in verse 20. It says, immediately when he, that is Jesus, called them, they left their father Zebedee. Economic cost, yes, but following Jesus might result for you in social or familial ties being weakened. There's a cost there too. If you come to faith in Jesus and you're not from a Christian background or a Christian family or Christian mates at school or whatever your context is, more often than not, when you come to faith and declare you're a Christian in public, your your, your family and your friends will just be confused. There'll be They'll be confounded maybe by your choice. They'll think you're stupid. Um, they'll be befuddled, but they might just let you get on with it and do your thing. That's your weekend um, where we do other things at the weekend. You might even lose a few friends because you're not hanging out or doing the same things you used to do before you came to Christ, right? But there, there, there might be a cost, a social cost in other cultures, um, in, you know, in other, uh, other countries Someone who comes to faith in Jesus and declares that to their family could expect alienation from the family. Get out, we don't know you, you're dead to us. They may even expect violence or threats against their lives for turning to Jesus and disrespecting the family. Following Jesus faithfully comes at an economic cost for most of us. It comes at a, um, a social cost in some ways. Look, I'm not trying to scare you off, and this is not certainly how I want to end on this sermon here. But I want you to know that being a disciple of Jesus, yes, it's thrilling, yes, it's life-altering, yes, it grows us uh, you know, to be more like Jesus. It's wonderful, but it comes at a cost. And it's best to know for you, if you're looking in at Christianity, if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're thinking about what it looks like, it's best that you know now. There's a cost. It is worth it. It is is infinitely worth it, but there is a cost. Or if you are a believer in a sort of general uh, sense, and yet you've been one on sort of false promises about what will happen to you in your life when you come to Jesus, again, you need to know there is a cost to following Jesus. It is worth it. So as we wrap up, let me ask you a series of questions. And this is really for your reflection, but I hope you can answer it straight away. A few questions to think about. Is Jesus calling you right now through his spirit? Is, is Jesus inviting you into a relationship with him if you're not already in that relationship? Is Jesus challenging you through his spirit right now to trust him, to trust his words, to actually live like it's true? Is Jesus calling you deeper? Deeper devotion, deeper experience, deeper knowledge of him? Are there areas of your life that you haven't yet given over to Jesus? Yeah, you say you're a believer. But is there a part of your life that you're still clinging on to? Is Jesus calling you to open your hands? Is Jesus calling you to take a step of faith? Is there a step that he wants you to take? We're going to have a few moments to reflect and just to be still.